Thank you, Dan, choir, and instrumentalists for beautiful worship this morning. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Will it fly? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Friends and neighbors had simply regarded them as completely ordinary. Nothing seemed unusual about these two bachelor brothers, sons of a united brethren bishop. They were quiet, well-dressed, hardworking, and actually polite to a fault. They were bicycle makers by trade from Dayton, Ohio. It was December the 17th, 1903. They were trying to make history. They were trying to finish their experiments and make it home for Christmas. The salty, cold winds were coming off the ocean. Oh, you could both taste the salt and the cold cut to the bone. Now, don't misunderstand. They were happy about the wind. The wind and the soft sand banks were the reason that this particular place had been chosen. Only after arduously studying, pouring over the average daily wind velocities at 120 different weather stations, had it been decided to come to this sandy little spot which boasted of the sixth highest wind velocity in the United States. They had never even been to this place before. But if it had a lot of wind and a lot of sand, that's what they were looking for. That's all that they needed to know. The location, however, could not be reached by land. There were no bridges that crossed over the inlets and the sounds. The problem was they had to find someone who both owned a boat and secondly, someone who had heard of this sleepy little fishing village that actually only had a, a few families for its population. Well, it took days to find somebody who both owned a boat and was willing to go to this little remote spot, but they found him. His name was Israel Perry. Now, Perry's boat leaked like a rusty old bucket and frequently dipped water. The brothers, the bicycle makers, had to bail all the way over to the little place, and finally they reached the sandy shore of their destination. The wind was there just like the weather reports had predicted. But the black flies were there too. One of the brothers recorded in his diary, they chewed us clear through to our underwear and our socks. If the flies were plentiful, so was the beauty. The sunsets were the most stunning that these boys had ever seen. The clouds lit up like a, a crimson prism. The background was a deep orange, and the front clouds of all different shapes that were bold and blue. Though they were friendly all right, the locals were sort of 
perplexed by these two preacher boys, these two brothers, these two Yankees. They had come to their little village at the worst time of year, while the winter was beginning to set in. And this contraption that the brothers were making, it made no sense. It, what they were building, it was a mystery to everybody. I mean, the, the locals were a practical, hard-headed lot who believed in a good God and a hot hell and more than anything else that the same good God intended for men to keep their feet on the ground. And it was perfectly silly, wasn't it? To think that these brothers had come to their little beach trying to get a man to fly like a bird? I mean, birds have wings. God made them to fly. Men have feet. God made men to walk. What's so hard to see about that? And at this time, even the greatest minds in 1903 could not. The greatest scientific minds had thought this impossible. Well, these guys just had a high school education, and they were bike peddlers. In 1888, Joseph LeCompte, the University of California professor, had written, it would always be impossible for man to fly because of two reasons. First of all, there is a low limit of weight, somewhere around 50 pounds, beyond which it is absolutely impossible for an animal to fly. And secondly, by the time you get the machine built and put an engineer on it, it'll weigh more than 50 pounds. And so, therefore, the professor Joseph LeConte said, a true flying machine, self-rising, self-sustaining, self-propelling is by the law of science impossible. Thomas Edison Somebody as smart as Thomas Edison said, is apparent to me that the possibilities of the aeroplane have been exhausted. Let's turn our attention elsewhere. Besides, just two weeks earlier, Samuel Pierport Langley, who had $70,000 and he worked for the Smithsonian Institute. This was the educated guy. He had tried two weeks earlier, and he had failed, failed for the last time, said, no flying, it'll never happen. Now, these sons of a preacher had $1,000 between them, and that included building the contraption and getting to the little Sandy Beach Kitty Hawk. But their dream, it would never go away. Oh, they were frustrated to be sure, and they, they thought about giving up on more than one occasion, thought about throwing in the towel, but making bicycles was just a way of making a living so they could make the dream stay alive. The dream was birth. What if this hadn't happened? The dream was birthed as children. They opened up a Christmas present from their father. And while most Christmas presents just kind of lie still in the box, this one flew up to the ceiling. It was a little rubber band 
dual blade helicopter toy made by the French inventor Alphonse Pinaud. In fact, Wilbur said to his father upon watching the, the little helicopter rise, he said, I've been afflicted with the belief that flight is possible. December the 17th, 1903, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The two brothers, you know by now, don't you? Orville and Wilbur Wright. They were ready for the first time to see their dream literally fly or crash. They'd made the engine. They had pioneered the shape and the size of the dimensions, the mechanics of the propeller, and they couldn't find anything to keep the propeller in place, so they used their trusty bicycle glue and glued that propeller right onto the wood. The fix-all bicycle cement. Few witnesses were there for the historic event. They were told to come, but no newspaper showed up. Nobody cared. The world was in its natural busyness, unaware that anything of any importance or magnitude was taking place. But there were a few witnesses. The first witness was John T. Daniels. John T. Daniels saw a flag on the beach, which was an indication to the locals that the brothers were going to try to fly. That was a sign to come to the beach. Well, then there was Willie Doe and Adam Etheridge. They just happened to be on the beach that day. They weren't there to see anything magnificent take place. And then there was William C. Barclay, who was a salesman of lumber, and he had heard there was a shipwreck, and he thought he was just scouring the beach looking for some pieces of lumber that he could claim and then resell. And I don't know why Johnny Moore was there. He was just a 16-year-old boy walking the beach that morning. Daniels had never taken a photograph in his life. For some reason, they chose John T. Daniels. They put a little bulb in his hand, and they told him when their contraption hit the end of the two-by-fours, you squeeze that bulb at just the right time. Orville and Wilbur were in their usual attire. Even with all the mechanics' duties, the oil, the grease, the sea, the sand, Wilbur and Orville were dressed in a suit and a tie, starch collar cap, unthinkable today to modern America. The wind was perfect. The flyer was supposed to be ready. They calculated over and over again on paper, but it was time to get off the paper and into the air. 10.35 A.M. Orville's at the controls. His life is on the line. He had been chosen by the mere fortune or misfortune of flipping a coin. You're it, brother. There could be no hedging his bets. In this little contraption, Orville had to lie flat. With all of his weight down low on the plane, he was life and limb committed to the moment. 
Wilbur ran alongside the right wing, telling him how to do this, arguing over the controls, last-minute adjustments. The years of dreaming were over. The time had come to test their dream in the laboratory of the sky. And there was only one question on everybody's heart, the two brothers and the five witnesses who happened to be at the beach that day. Will it fly? For the first time in the history of humanity, will it fly? The plane, the oil is spurting, the, the smoke and the sea of the cold is going. The runway was four 15-foot long two-by-fours. That was the runway. And so as he's going down the runway, they were, they were fully committed. There he is, Orville, laying down. Here it goes. Here it goes. One question, will it fly? Now, Orville had read every man who had ever tried to fly, and he knew that men often died. There's the propeller spinning. There's all sorts of bad things. Men had died trying to fly. But he placed all of his weight and faith on his machine. Have you ever placed yourself in such a vulnerable position? A position where you're really counting on something in the biggest of ways? Something or someone upon whom you have placed your whole weight and you pondered, will it disappoint me? Will it fly? There will be a time in your life, if you're a Christian, you will be called upon to put your whole weight on the gospel story, upon the story of Jesus. You've heard this story so many times about a virgin who conceived and gave birth to a son named him Jesus. That he lived an absolutely sinless life and that when he died on the cross, that God was working through his death and then the glorious resurrection, the ascension of the Father, and now we await for his return for the church. Maybe you've heard that story and you're curious about that story. Or maybe you've heard that story so many times that you have lost the uniqueness and the power of the story. But someday you will be called upon to cast your weight upon the story. And you, like Orville Wright, are going to commit yourself life and limb to the story of Jesus. And you're going to ask the question, on that day, will it fly? Will it fly? Perhaps it's a painful divorce that will bring you to put your weight on the gospel. Maybe it's a layoff notice from work. Maybe it's a conflict or a sickness in your life. Maybe as it is in our text this morning, it is the death of someone you hold dear. A spouse, a sibling, a parent, or God forbid, a child. What will you do when death comes? Life has been forever changed by the harsh, cruel blow of the unwelcome power of death. 
And you're going to have to, in that moment, put your whole weight on the story of Jesus and ask the question, will the gospel fly? Will it, will it come through for me? Will it disappoint? Well, I want us to notice two things this morning. First of all, if the gospel fails us, we have no hope. Look at verses 13 through 19. If the gospel fails us, we have no hope. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. If the gospel fails, we are without hope. Perhaps you've heard someone say something along these lines. Well, if there is no eternal life, I'm still glad that I followed the gospel. It's a nice way to live. An attempt to sort of hedge his bets about whether or not this resurrection thing is real. Trying to limit the losses. No, Paul says. If the dead are not raised, we have no hope, and we have lived the wrong way. Paul is not hedging his bets. He accepts the gospel story as completely true. For him, it was a radical reversal in life. He had been a zealous follower of Pharisaical Judaism. He had given his whole life to that. And if God was working through Pharisaical Judaism, Paul would be a Pharisee above all Pharisees, the writer of our text. But the one who thought he was following God on the road to Damascus to arrest those who were of the Christian faith, the followers of the way, he saw the bright light and he heard the voice of the resurrected Jesus. He became blinded for a while and he knew that God was at work in the story of Jesus. Like Orville Wright rushing down the skid track, in the first ever airplane, Paul had committed himself, life, and limb to the story of Jesus. He had seen and heard the voice of the resurrected Jesus. Well, here's why there's no hope. A, the first reason there's no hope is verse 17. We're still in our sin. If the gospel won't fly, if it's not true, then you and I still walk in our sin. There is no forgiveness or sin. Every sin that you and I ever committed is still upon our backs. We're still guilty before God. We are a sinful people in the eyes of God. If the gospel is not true, you live in your sins. Number two, B, verse 18. If the story of the person of Jesus is not true, then those who've died with a false faith have simply perished. There's no life after this life. Make no mistake about it, Paul says, our only source of hope is the gospel. 
And those stricken by the power of death, your wife, your husband, your mother, your father, your child, your brother, your sister, have simply perished. They're dead and gone. The gospel's not true. Psychologist remembered the death of one of his colleagues at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. The colleague was a doctor, a professor, He'd been in medicine for 25 years, his research. He had attained the highest level and had the success in research and finances that went with something like that. And at the next hospital staff meeting, the chairman asked everybody to stand up for one minute of silence, well, in memory of the dead doctor. A colleague wrote on his tablet when he got home, I had no idea what the other staff were thinking about during that 60-second pause, but I can tell you what was going through my mind. I was thinking, Lord, is this what it comes down to? The sweat, we worry, we labor to achieve a place in life to impress our fellow man. We We take ourselves so seriously, overreacting to the insignificant events of each passing day. And then finally, even the brightest and best among us, all those successes fade into history and our lives are summarized by 60 seconds of silence and it's over. Psychologist was dumbstruck by the inability of the brightest and best at the children's hospital to deal with their colleague's death. Where had he gone? Would he live again? They did not know. There's a third C in verse 15. At the story of Jesus isn't true, then we've made God to be a liar. We, each of us, have taken the Testifiers stand, and we have said by our actions, even coming today, if you thought Jesus was still dead, you would not be in this building this morning. You came because you are testifying by your presence, you're testifying by your life, by the Christian burials in your family, that God raised him from the dead. But if in fact God was not in the story of Jesus, you have made God a liar. It's not good. For us, if Jesus isn't raised. I want you to look at verse 18. Paul tips his hand. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, he didn't call them dead. He tipped his hand, didn't he? Those who have fallen asleep. Paul's not buying it for a moment. So the the second major point, give thanks to God that indeed the gospel will not fail. It will not fail, first of all, A, because it happened, look at verse 3 and 4, according to the scriptures, look at the end of verse 3, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul knew his Old Testament. He was a Pharisaical Jew. And what he's saying is this, everything about the story of Jesus, his virgin birth, his sacrificial death, his being the sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant, the prophets had all spoken of this before. You can count on the gospel because it's not something new. It's a continuation of the story of God and God's people. There's a second reason he says, B, because of the eyewitnesses. In verses 5 through 8, he gives us a list. He appeared to Peter, that is Cephas, and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom who remain alive are still now. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And 
Then he appeared to me also. Like John T. Daniels on the beach of Kitty Hawk, they were there. They had seen the resurrected Jesus. It's a hard story to believe, in case you haven't processed this, that a rabbi gathered disciples like all good rabbis do, but this rabbi died. He was placed in the tomb. The stone was rolled over the tomb, and then he was resurrected. He came to life again. Well, go ask Peter. Go ask his brother James. He wouldn't believe for anything. And then Thomas, they told Thomas he was alive, and he said, I've got to touch the scars. Thomas had touched the scars. There's more than 500 who saw him alive on one occasion. They're still alive. You go ask them if you don't believe me, Paul wrote. Hey, and let me remind you, I saw him too. And first, the men thought it was just excited women. Oh, by the way, God did pick women to be the first preachers of the gospel. But then the men saw Jesus themselves. And then see the resurrection of, of Jesus gives us assurance, verse 20 through 26. Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all should be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God, the Father, who's abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. See, what happened with Jesus' resurrection isn't the empty tomb of one rabbi. No, God isn't God if that's what happened. You see, God says, this is the first apple off the tree, and those who call Jesus Lord, baptism. We die with him, and we rise with him. God is not God at all if we're not all raised. For Adam brought death, but for those who believe, Jesus brought life. He is alive. He is alive. Look real closely. You can still see their footprints on the Carolina sand. Orville has his full weight on the flying machine. Wilbur's shuffling beside, bickering over those last moment adjustments. The smoke is in the cool air. I don't know what Orville's thinking at this moment. I know what I'd be thinking. I wish Wilbur had won the coin toss is what I'd be thinking. He was committed, life and limb, all his weight, 120 feet, 12 seconds, the first time a human being had flown. Three flights to follow. Wilbur got his turn. Wilbur went 59 seconds and 800 feet on the last flight. And oh yeah, John T. Daniels, he squeezed the bulb at just the right time and his first ever picture was a success. 
Orville summed it up. It was the first flight in the history of the world in which a machine carrying a man had raised itself by its own power into the air in full flight, had sailed forward without reduction of speed, and finally landed at a point as high as that from which it had started. The five visitors drifted away from the beach. Orville and Wilbur now had no need to hurry. They ate their lunch. They washed their dishes, and they walked calmly five miles to Kitty Hawk Weather Station. They sent a telegram back to Preacher Daddy. Success. Four flights. We'll be home for Christmas. And when they arrived at Dayton a few days later, there were no reporters, there was no band, there were no throngs of people, only their father, Catherine, their sister, and Lauren, their older brother, and the conquerors of the air rode home in a one-horse surrey. One day, the sting of death. And the gospel, it will fly. Let us pray. Oh God, if there's anyone here this morning who's not embraced the death of Jesus, that they may also experience his resurrection. I pray that today would be the day that he or she would come and say, I want to die with him and rise with him. Maybe others who need to come and be a part of this great fellowship, that today would be the day to say, I want to be part of this church family. I want to put my whole weight on the gospel with these people called First Baptist Church. Love with them, hope with them, serve with them. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.